I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back, everybody. It is your Thursday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. As always, sitting in these two seats, it's Ian Mendes, Sean McAdoo. Ahead of the next hour, we will have, as always, Jesse Granger dropping by for Granger things. So we got a whole bunch of things to uh, uh, roll up our sleeves and dig into. Uh, Sean and myself and the other Sean. American Sean, is that what we call him? Anyway, uh, we had a really fun piece this week about rules court, taking some of your ideas um, and we got a fun one to discuss about uh, overtime, so we'll get to that. April Fool's Day. We want to have a warning. April Fool's Day is coming up this week. Uh, we'll talk about some favorite hockey pranks, uh, World Cup of Hockey news, the GM meetings. Got some really fun mailbag questions, too, about the Calgary Flames and not having a captain uh, this week in hockey history uh, as well. We get to all of that. But, uh, Sean, as we kick this off, I, you know what? I, I've kind of debated on this, and, uh, and, and before I give my thoughts... Uh, on on the passing of Eugene Melnick because obviously that uh, in 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 our market in in the team I cover seismic news uh, in Ottawa and before I wanted to share a couple of personal anecdotes with our listeners and with you that I don't even know that I've told you a couple of these stories uh, but um, you know I'm just I wanted to get your perspective on this man's I guess complicated legacy because you've you've witnessed it firsthand and I, I and I can't remember. If it was twenty, it was the summer. I think it was the summer of twenty twenty, and you wrote a really, in my opinion, passionate, well articulated, well thought out, thought out piece, which was basically, um, it, the, the relationship between the Ottawa Senator fan base and Eugene Malnick was irreparably damaged, and you had a a very good seat for this in the last few years because, peel back the curtain, you do live in Ottawa. So even mm-hmm. though people think, oh yeah, Mac and do down goes Brownies, Mr. Leaf guy. Well, now he lives right in, in, in Ottawa. So you have seen this play out. You've weighed in on it. And I'm just curious what, what your thoughts were on, uh, on, on obviously, like I said, a seismic piece of news in Ottawa this week. Yeah. I mean, Eugene Melnick had owned this team for nearly 20 years and 
if you put anyone in a position of, of that much influence for that long, there will be ups and downs, and then there certainly were uh, in the Eugene Melnick era, beginning with the fact that, that he bought a team that some people were wondering if it had a future. Uh, you know, the, the, in 2003, remember, these are the days before the salary cap. This team was bankrupt. This team was missing paychecks to its own players, which is even, even in the difficult financial world, um, of the NHL was was just about unheard of, and Eugene Melnick was a guy who rode in and and saved the team uh, was was the perception at the time, and uh, I think you know certainly fans appreciated that. And then you know when they're playing the Leafs in two thousand four, and he kind of has the comments about yeah we're going to go into Toronto, we're going to kill them. Um, it, that that played well in this market. I think you know Ottawa's sometimes gets a little tired of being the the sleepy boring town and the fact that you know here was this owner who wasn't afraid to run his mouth a little bit uh i think connected with an element of the fan base and then obviously that that same uh you know that that same willingness to to speak his mind uh it came back to to bite him on on more than a few occasions and and look there's all sorts of valid criticism that you could you could aim at him uh as as ownership goes and and the piece i wrote a couple years ago was from my perspective, growing up as a Leafs fan in, in the Harold Ballard era, which, you know, still to this day, I would argue the worst owner in the history of the NHL. Um, and, and I know the perspective of, of that feeling of hopelessness, that feeling of, you know, we're never going to go anywhere as long as this guy is around. Um, fair or unfair, once that permeates a fan base, it's, uh, it, it really does feel like something gets broken. And that's where it was in Ottawa. And Certainly, this is this was never a scenario that that anyone wished for, um, and it's uh, you know, first and foremost, uh, of course, far beyond a hockey story. It, you know, it, it goes to the friends and the family who are who are mourning a guy gone too soon. But we are, you know, we're hockey writers, and this is a hockey podcast. And, and from a hockey perspective, this is quite possibly the biggest thing that has ever happened to the. Ottawa Senators. Eugene Melnick, I think, is inarguably, for good or for bad, the most influential person in the history of this franchise. Um, and and now that he's gone, we don't really know what comes next uh, for the Ottawa Senators. And uh, it's it really is hard to imagine a a bigger story uh, and a bigger turn of events uh, for uh, for whatever the future of this franchise holds. You know, and, and one thing is, I think when that news came out on Monday, it came as a massive shock to a lot of hockey fans. I think they were like, what? Like, they, it was jaw-dropping news. And it's rare in the year 2022 you find jaw-dropping news anymore, right? There's often mm-hmm. hints and things. And one thing I want to say is, um, I, I, I want I, look, in the media, we get a lot of criticism for being having kind of a vulture-esque mentality clickbait mentality. If I got a little piece of news, I'm going to run with it. I'm going to be a fear monger, rumor generator, innuendo, that type of thing. And I want to take one moment to say on behalf of the entire Ottawa media, we all knew that uh, we all knew about the state of this man's health for the last, if not six weeks, certainly in the last two or three weeks, we knew that this unfortunately was not uh, headed in, in, in a good direction. And I think, and, and I think what I, I appreciate is we didn't all have an, uh, a, a conversation and say, you know what, like, let's all sit on this. I think we just knew this is the right thing to do. Like, mm-hmm. to me, um, 
people's health is not something that should be reported on without their consent or the family's consent, right? Like, and, and, and I know that the, the news came as a shock to a lot of people um, when they saw it on Monday, but, but we certainly knew that it was trending in a, in a poor direction. And uh, I, you know, I, I think we did the right thing by, by not speculating on it, by yep. not saying anything. A- abs- absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, yeah again, I, I know that we get the we get the reputation of you guys are terrible. You 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 don't show any restraint. I collectively, I think as a group, we showed some restraint here. Yeah, right? and, and I it's all look it. everyone. It's it's all human beings. Whether it's you know the media, the, the the athletes, we we forget about sometimes, or or even an owner that that you don't like. Uh, in it's as a fan, uh, and and you have that right. That that's that's why this team and this league exists uh, is is because of the fans, but. These are human beings that uh, behind it all, and and with with families, with people that care about them, and it's uh, you know obviously a tremendously difficult time for for a lot of people uh, connected to Eugene Melnick right now. Yeah, and listen, I had I would characterize my relationship with him as tumultuous, professionally tumultuous is probably mm-hmm. an accurate way to describe it. And but that means that there were some really good moments and then some really bad moments, and um. I think what, when I look back at it all, Sean, I think, you know what? Like, I don't feel like I was on an island. I think if you talk to Daniel Alfredson or Eric Carlson or uh, former team presidents or a lot of people, like a lot of them had the same experience as me, which is at some point in your professional career, you had a very tight relationship with Eugene Melnick. And then for whatever reason, it fell apart. And it was a common theme. And, and I think of Dave Cameron who longtime coach was, was, was Eugene's coach in, uh, in the OHL and they had a professional falling out and I don't think they ever spoke again. And it's remarkable to me that he had so many, uh, you know, fractured relationships, but I got to tell you, like I had some really good times with him. Like there was a time where if I needed anything, confirm a story, confirm, just text him, just send him an email. He would get back to you ASAP. And it was, it was great. And I want to say, I want to take credit. I don't think I've ever put this out. I, I may have said this at one point on the radio years ago in Ottawa, but I want to take some credit here for, you know, when the senators went to their, they just switched back to their quote unquote 2d logo, like the original logo. Mm-hmm. So this is probably in, I think 2017, the senators have a kickoff event there. And you'll laugh at this because they're, they're announcing we have new hot dogs in the arena. We, and hey, the media is like free hot dogs to try. Yep. I'm, like, it was probably the most crowded press conference <laughs> yeah. of the Eugene Melnick era. And I'm getting my hot dog in the line, and Eugene Melnick is there, and he's fixing his hot dog with you know his whatever his mustard. And I say to him, "Listen, Eugene, I got a great idea for you. I think you need to go back to your old 2D logo from when before you kind of came on, and when this was the original." And he looks at me like as if I have two heads. He's like, "What? Why?" I said, listen, you don't understand. Like, There's such a great connection between those 90s teams and the early 2000s. And now those kids who grew up watching you in the 90s, early 2000s, they have kids of their own. And they, there's this connectivity. And I think you should really think about going back to 2D Jersey. And I have a witness, Graham Creech, who, is a, who works on the radio station here in Ottawa, was with me. He witnessed it. He will back me up. Me pitching to Eugene Malnick, do the 2D Jersey. And Eugene's like, oh, okay, that's a, that's a good idea. And sure enough, a couple of years later, I, I, I just want to take some credit for. Yeah. Being Sounds like able you're to, taking all the credit. Uh, yeah. This is, 
Your yeah. idea. Okay. Yeah. It was my idea. My idea. And, you know, like I had such a good relationship with him where, like, I remember just before he had the, the issue with his liver in 2015, his personal assistant and right-hand man was a guy named Ken, Kenny Villazor. Ken is a great guy. And Ken would put out a lot of fires for Eugene. You know, when Eugene would say something controversial, Kenny would kind of reach out and be like, ah, you know, he didn't really mean that. And he was a great fire extinguisher. And Ken reached out to me and said, listen, Eugene is going to Afghanistan on a kind of a, uh, like a promotional tour and wants to, to bring a couple media people over. You're going to play some ball hockey on the ships out there. And he's picked you. He just thinks so highly of you. And I thought, okay, well, you know what? This, this could be a neat experience. Go spend some time. And then unfortunately he fell quite ill and, and that trip never came to fruition. And then our professional, again, professional relationship kind of went off the rails there. But, but it, it, to me, it was, it was like, I don't, I felt very conflicted on Monday because I did like, I know that he didn't like me at the end, but I do think that at times he did. And I think it's important to understand that like human beings are imperfect creatures, right? Like we sometimes think that, you know, we demand perfection, especially out of our owners of like, they, they, they're, they hold this sort of sacred entity in their hands, which is an NHL team and, and certainly in the Canadian market. But I got to say, as I look back at it, like this team isn't here if he's not here, right? So there's that element of it. But like, I'm having a hard time. I'm, I'm really, I'm grappling with this because at the end, the last three and a half, four years, like he wouldn't return my texts. He made it very clear I was kind of persona non grata around the arena. And, it, and, and that's okay. Like, but yeah. I, what I'm hoping is we get, a fresh start in Ottawa and whether it's Anna and Olivia who own the team, whether it's somebody else and you saw it to some extent, certainly in, in, in Toronto in the early nineties, when there's a change in ownership, you saw it um, at least on the ice in Chicago. I don't think we should necessarily go down the road about everything else that happened there, but certainly there was a connectivity that was restored between a mm. city and a hockey team. And I think that's the hope here in Ottawa, right? That, the, that would be the hope. And you know, you look at the way that, that things have gone in the past. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Chicago and Toronto because those were two very different paths. Uh, in in Chicago, when Bill Wirtz passed away, it, it had been known for for years that when that happened, that the the team would would go on to his kids, and you know we knew that Rocky and, and uh, the the family would continue to own the team and and there was a plan going forward versus in Toronto when Harold Ballard passed away um there there was there was not that in place Harold Ballard had kids but the the relationships were fractured there there was a, you know the strange things with his wife or or uh, or sort of wife was it uh, Yolanda Yolanda yeah Yolanda Ballard who who he wasn't technically married to but was his longtime partner there were lawsuits there were other you know groups moving in immediately to to try to to fill fill voids power plays all sorts of of backroom dealing and backstabbing and drama um it, which which went for a couple of years and uh you know even extended even once the power struggle initially was resolved it it continued in the, you know until the late 90s where the pension plan and and all of this moved in so uh we don't know i mean it's certainly one thing you never really heard around Ottawa. And again, Eugene Melnick was, was a relatively, uh, relatively young man. 
Um, you, you didn't really seem to hear about the succession plan. You didn't seem to hear you, you mentioned his his two children. Um, you know, they certainly weren't weren't visible to to fans as as having any sort of role in the team. And they're uh, they're both both of his daughters are are quite young relative to um, you know the 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 rest of the, you know, who you think of when you think of NHL or pro sports team ownership. Um, so I, I think a lot of people are wondering right now, and, you know, you had the story come out this week in the aftermath talking about the, are the senators going to play games in Quebec city? And a lot of people connected dots there saying, you know, is this the first step to this team? Maybe not being here. Um, and then, you know, that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, you had a piece today where you, you basically said in, in your piece that, um, and, and, you know, correct me if I'm paraphrasing this wrong, but you basically said, this team is staying in Ottawa. There, yeah. there is, it, it, you know, I, I guess that is the one thing. We don't know whether it's the, the team will stay with the Melnick family. We don't know whether it will be sold. We don't know who might bid on it. But it, it is not a situation, as I understand it, where the league may look at this as an opportunity to move the team even to a quote-unquote better market. Basically, if, if, if there's anyone out there who wants to keep the team in Ottawa, and there is then the team is going to stay in Ottawa and, and Senators fans should put that worry aside if, if that's something they're feeling right now. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's uh, it's worth pointing out that, and I put this in my column today, uh, there are multiple, I'll leave it at that. I, I, I'll say multiple and groups that are willing to buy the team and keep them in Ottawa. I can't stress that enough. I don't I don't like fear-mongering. I don't like people thinking that there's a potential they're going to move. I I just need people to know multiple groups are willing to buy them, keep them here and have them thrive uh, long term. The other thing I want to point out real quick before we we certainly move on to well, hopefully will be some lighter uh, topics uh, for the rest of the show. Um, you know, his daughters are twi- uh 23 and 20. Anna and Olivia are both 23 and 20. So early 20s. And the younger daughter, Olivia, is somebody who actually had a little bit of an interest, I think, in the business side of, of the team. She did a couple of internships when she was in high school with the, the hockey team. And so in the last couple of days, look, I've reached out to some people who worked with her thinking, hey, just can you give me some background on this young person? Like, and the things that came back were really positive. And I want to stress that because I think if you were uh, an heir to either a hockey team or a significant, significant fortune, there is an expectation that maybe you won't be a down-to-earth person, right? You might be entitled, you might be spoiled, you might be, you know, whatever adjective you Mm -hmm. want to use. And the things that came back to me repeatedly were, boy, Olivia Melnick was down-to-earth, never had the air of entitlement, never made you feel weird that, you know, she's that, oh man, look out, that's Eugene's daughter, walk on eggshells. And what I thought was really interesting is she showed a significant interest in diversity, equality, um, initiatives like the DEI movement. So she was like, Hey, we need to be better for more forward thinking. We need to be better with our hiring practices. We need to uh, widen the net. And I thought, you know what? I think this is important for our audience to know that Mm -hmm. if in fact this ownership stake goes to the daughters, and if in fact they have some degree of control over this, this will be a fresh view, um, coming from the ownership suite, in my opinion. You know. Yep, that's and that's that's great to hear. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I guess it, the last thing I would say on on Eugene Melnick is, I think whatever 
you might think of him as as a person and, and as an owner. Um, he cared very deeply about the Ottawa Senators. Um, and, and I think just about everything, the good and the bad, came from that. And, you know, we've certainly in, in pro sports and in hockey seen, we've seen owners that were very hands-off. We've seen owners that yeah. really seem to view, you know, it's, it's, it's an item on my, you know, on my bottom line. It's not something I'm passionate about. Uh, and, and some people would say that's the best kind of owner to have is somebody who just signs the checks and, and stays out of the way. It, that wasn't Eugene Melnick. He, he was, um, you know, the, there's there's other people who will tell you that I need an owner who is a fan of the team first and foremost, and that is what they had in Ottawa in Eugene Melnick. This this guy, um, he he cared and he wanted to see this team win, and I think at, at times was not maybe in the best position to know how to make that happen. Um, but that's that's where it all seemed to come from. So um, that's that's not something you see in every situation and in every market with every team. And it's it's what Ottawa had in Eugene Melnick, and and now we wait and see what comes next. You know, and I think as well, like he might be the last of the era of these sort of colorful, bombastic billionaire owners, right? Like that. Like if you think of pro sports teams in the seventies, the eighties, and nineties, they like there were these singular people that owned sports teams, and now it's very much shifted to large corporations own the team, and it's very mm-hmm. faceless. Eugene was a throwback. He was the, you know, if, you, if you're a baseball fan, Charlie Finley, who owned uh, the A's uh, in the 70s. Yep. Uh, George Steinbrenner, uh, who who kind of cast a larger shadow than than uh, than the Yankees logo did sometimes. And like, the, you don't see that anymore. It's, like, you it's, don't it's rare, it. yeah. yeah. And, and, and some of what we saw in Ottawa is why it's rare, right? Because it, it doesn't... It doesn't always work, and uh, yeah, you always got the feeling that that Eugene Melnick, you know, probably either saw himself or you know aspired to be kind of an, an Ottawa version of Jerry Jones, right? Like that, uh, yeah, that guy who's involved from in in every piece of things and uh, and and can make it all work, and uh, you know, obviously the the results have been pretty mixed uh, in Dallas, uh, and and we're extremely mixed in Ottawa. Um, but the, the you know the the one thing you never heard in Ottawa of, of all the many many things and you know you you could barely have a conversation about this team in the last decade plus that didn't prominently feature Eugene Melnick's name. The one thing you never heard was well Eugene doesn't care. Yeah, that's right. this isn't a big deal to Eugene. He's not a, you know whatever. That was not part of the Eugene Melnick experience. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, as always, on a Thursday, time for us to bring in Jesse Granger for a little segment we like to call Granger Things, brought to you by BetMGM, the exclusive betting partner with us at The Athletic, and Jesse Granger coming to us from Seattle, where it's uh, an odd one, where Vegas plays not one but two games 
in uh, in Seattle this week. Did you think about going Airbnb this week? <laughs> no. You know, you're there for a week or five days. Why not just Airbnb this thing? I, I didn't consider it, but um, I'm staying in downtown Seattle, and it's a pretty good spot. I'm, I'm enjoying myself so far. I'm a few blocks away from the uh, famous fish market, so uh, not, I'm a big seafood fan, too. So I, I'm, in pretty, I'm, I'm in heaven over here. Right on. Get, to, yeah, get ready to catch your fish. <laughs> I know If I know anything about Seattle, that's one of three things. So. There you go. And the gu- you got to tell me what you think of the gum wall, Okay. <laughs> You know what? I walked past it in yeah, Ghost Alley. Uh, I haven't I haven't been there in the COVID era because in the pre-COVID era, it was still gross. People just putting their chewed gum on a wall. And now I can only imagine in the post-COVID world, it's even grosser. Yeah, it was pretty gross. Um, there yeah. were people there were people posing next to the wall, like pretending like they were sticking. A pe- yeah, it, not for me. I, I, I watched from a distance. <laughs> All right. Hey, listen, we got you here to, to, to chat to, uh, about a couple of trends in the league. And I know you want to actually bring up something that you brought up on the Wednesday pod with Julian McKenzie. And uh, it's about the pattern of seeing some, some more goals, a little bit more offense in the NHL this season. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. They're, so so league-wide, they're averaging 3.11 goals per game this year, which is the highest since 1995-1996. So the highest in 26 years. And yesterday... We, me and Julian, we were kind of talking about how, like, why is that happening? And and I think Julian's explanation was, I, I guess, the best one that that we came up with, and that was something along the lines of depth players are scoring more off. They're they're more skilled. Teams are leaning towards a more skilled game, not just on their top two lines, like has been the case for a while, but also the four, the third and fourth line guys and defensemen. We're watching guys like Makar and Yossi obviously putting up ridiculous points, but it just seems like league-wide when you watch hockey every night, you see a ton of skilled defensemen on the back end. Um, I, I'd like to get your guys' perspective on it. Sean, why do you think there's so many goals in the league this year? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because this is, you know, people who read my stuff know that I I follow this closely and I've been banging the drum for uh, decades now uh, about the lack of scoring in the NHL and and how we've all just come to accept it and it, it is it is up this year now it's not you know we're we're up we're talking a tenth of a goal uh, over some of the previous uh, seasons so uh, you know we don't want to overstate it but progress is progress and it, it what's interesting is you know a, a few years ago what happened was we saw we started to see the shots against creep up. Even though the goaltending was the similar quality, there were a couple more shots a game. And then last year, in that weird season, the shots went back down, but the goaltending was worse. The save percentage dropped. And, and so it kind of balanced out. And then this year, we're sort of seeing both. The shots are back up. The save percentage is is staying steady, which adds up to, to more goals. My theory is that what we are seeing here is at least partly due to the quality of the players that are out there, especially the goaltenders. We've seen a lot of teams have to go to third goaltenders this year, fourth goaltenders. You're seeing it obviously in Vegas. Uh, you know, we, we get the situation with the Leafs right now. Um, we saw it in Ottawa. You, you go on down the list. It's probably a, a shorter list of teams that have been solid in goal. I'm just talking in terms of having two guys that they, that they trust, let alone star players. A lot of guys have had to, to swap in. Uh, Montreal may be the most obvious example. There was a, a time where, I mean, the, the guys they were running out there were just getting shelled every night, but that's that's who they had. 
Um, and I think that's that's sort of added up as well as you know that that also plays out on the blue line. You got a few guys who are um, you know maybe maybe not quite NHL quality, and and that can can add up. I think that's a big part of it. Um, and uh, you know you mix in a couple of quote unquote top goaltenders having you know maybe not the years that they were they were hoping to have. Maybe some guys playing more than they would like to play because the backup gets hurt or because, you know, somebody gets COVID or whatever happens. Um, I think that could be contributing. And I hope I'm wrong because if, if I'm right about that, then none of this is, is likely to be permanent. We're, we're, we would expect to see it regress back down in, in the next little while and, and maybe even worse because the NHL loves to pat itself on the back. Anytime scoring goes up even a little bit, they go mission accomplished and they're, they're so proud of themselves and then we see it drop back down. Maybe that happens again. I hope I'm wrong and it and it doesn't and, and we're seeing some sort of bigger change. But my suspicion is we've just got some some goalies in the league who probably shouldn't be playing and they're getting shelled and yeah, knocking it, the average up. Yeah. And you know what? Along those lines, and, and maybe and I didn't have the time to look this up, but I, I feel like there's no way that we've seen this recently. There are nine teams right now, guys. Nine teams that have a sub 900 save percentage from their goalies. Nine. Nine yep. teams in the NHL. Like, so Edmonton is uh, at 899. And then after that, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Columbus, Chicago, Montreal, Detroit, New Jersey, and Seattle. Seattle is bottoming out at 879. New Jersey's at 885. Like, we just don't see this. In fact, and there's not a single team that has a 920 save percentage, which is remarkable, right? Like, you would have thought, oh, yeah, the Rangers, they're, they're probably right. at 930. They're at 918. And I and I think we've not seen uh this type of uh you know uh this type of goaltending, like Sean said, in a long time. And nineteen I'd have to look this up. When's the last time we had nine teams end a season with a sub nine hundred save percentage? I'm thinking it's been maybe since that mid nineties there. Yeah. Probably been a, a long while. Another stat that I that I noticed when I was trying to like come up with a hypothesis for this is the league, the the power play percentage league wide is 21.01% right now. Wow. And so, so this is the highest anyone scored since 1995. Well, that's the highest power play percentage since 1985. Uh, We're talking 36 years since the last time the league power play percentage was 21.1%. That would lean more towards your you got kind of what you guys are talking about. The goalies aren't making the saves as opposed to what Julian and I were kind of talking about, like the depth guys, because obviously power plays, that's just the top guys. I want, I wonder, do you think there's, there is a little bit of teams are executing better on the power play teams. Get, coaches have figured out ways Could to score be. on the power play, or is it we, just poor? We have seen thing? more of the, uh, you know, the four forwards on the power play deployment. Yeah. We're even seeing some teams go to five. I think we have moved the thinking away from, the idea that, okay, let's go in and get set up and then we just send it back to the point and try right, to bomb right. a, a 90 mile an hour slap shot. I think there's an understanding that doesn't work. So it could be now, you know, again, that that's something where you tend to see ebbs and flows, right? Because we, Lord knows in this NHL, if anything, if the offense gets any kind of advantage, the coaches catch up so quickly, right? They, they, they immediately figure out a way to, to counteract it. And uh, so, you know, again, that could be part of it, but let me let me throw a number at you guys uh, that uh, just I, I looked up as as we were talking. Um, 19, uh, 2018-19. So this is the last full season. 
Okay, I'm not counting last year's partial season and I'm not counting the, the COVID season. 2018-19, there were 93 goaltenders that played at least one game in that NHL season. Uh, 2017-18, there were 95 goaltenders who played at least one game. This season so far, and keep in mind we're, we're still a month to go, there have been 112 goaltenders appear in the NHL. So that's yep. 20 guys roughly, you know, uh, that in a normal NHL season would not have appeared, uh, who, who are appearing now. And, uh, you know, when I, when I look at guys who, when I look at guys, you know, if you make the cutoff five games or 10 games, it starts to, the, the, the gap starts to disappear. So it suggests that there's just a whole lot of guys who've been thrown in for a game or two. Uh, and, and most of them I'm looking down the list. There's a lot of guys who, uh, you know, have just gotten shelled, you know, Michael Hutchinson in two games, Jack LaFontaine in Carolina just, just got lit up. Uh, I don't even know who Hugo Elnavet is, but apparently he plays for the lightning and he had a, he had a nine goals against average and a 700 save percentage. Um, this is, uh, it's, it, you know, again, and every year there's a couple of guys who get into games and get shelled and, and go back down to the minors. It seems to be a lot more that it's happening this year. Yeah, and listen, Jesse. Before we uh, we let you go, now the the key is, how do you capitalize on this? If if you are looking as a a person who puts some money down on on games or is into pools or uh, betting, there's got to be a way to maybe uh, take advantage of this kind of the the higher scoring rate or or what we're seeing out of poor goaltending. Right. So so you automatically look to the over unders and and you wonder how much like has the market caught up to it? Because like Sean said, if there's if there's a little bit of offense, the coaches are going to catch up to it and figure out how to stop it. Well, the sports book, the odds makers aren't going to just let everyone hit overs all year long. They're going to start raising those overs. And we have seen some of the overs. Like I can't, I can remember when, if, if, if a game was a six on the over, it was like, Oh wow. High scoring game tonight. Whereas now you look at the slate and it's like almost all the games are six and then you'll see a five and a half every once in a while. But so I looked season long, 52.6% of the games have gone over, which is slight. That's in, in, in betting averages. That's not a, a big enough trend to go on. Um, but when you start looking lately, and, and this may go kind of towards Sean's point too, the goalies are banged up. You're getting later in the year. Lately, the scoring has been much high, like higher and the, the, the over under trends are, are showing that. So it's 40, it's 52% for the season. The last 30 days, 58.6% of the games have gone over, while only 41% have gone under. And then in the last seven days, just in the last week, 63.5% of the games have gone over the total, 33 overs and only 19 unders. So it definitely looks like this is trending now. Maybe now that we're getting towards the playoff chase, we'll have to see. I was talking yeah. to a couple of players on the Golden Knights the other day, and they mentioned that, like, yeah, it feels like you can kind of feel it starting to tighten up. Like teams are starting to and, get and in. And it always does. Run. That that goals rate always goes down because every season we get halfway through and people go, this is on pace to be the highest. And then yeah. the last month you see a dive as teams tighten up, you know, the, the starters play more games, that sort of thing. So, um yeah, I'm. I'm not surprised to hear them saying that. You'd you'd have to be so. You, so you have to be careful. Like you got to watch. You got to look at your spots if you're trying to bet an over. If if it's two playoff teams like a Vegas, an Edmonton, an LA, the the the, the chase in the West is really tight. Obviously, in the East, not so much. Um, they pretty much have their eight. But I think 
you got to pick your spots. You maybe look at the goalies. I think I think you guys brought up a lot of good points about the goalies getting thrown in there. If you see a guy that isn't a normal NHL guy that's playing, maybe throw some money on the over on that game. But yes, I mean, 63.5% going over in the last seven days and even 58, 58.6% over a month. That's it for, for betting terms, being able to beat the spread 50. If you can beat the spread 58% of the time, you're doing phenomenal. So, um, pretty, pretty solid trends to the over, um, to go along with the, uh, the, uh, obviously most scoring we've seen in 25 years. So just kind of a cool stat. Yeah. Hey, listen, Jesse, we'll leave it there. But by the way, all of those games that went over, it's all because of the Red Wings. I think they're <laughs> yeah. solely responsible uh, for all of this. But listen, thanks for this. Uh, enjoy your time in Seattle. And uh, look forward to your coverage of the Golden Knights against the Kraken this week. And uh, we'll get you again next Thursday. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Jesse. All right. Always great to get Jesse Granger on. Uh, you, you're uh, For the people who are just listening to this podcast, um, they couldn't see your expression when I brought up the gum wall. In I've never heard of this. Yeah. I'd never heard of this before. And here's my question. Why are we not having at least one of the Kraken goalies be nicknamed Gumwall going forward? Like, how is this something that is yeah, not right? I mean, it hasn't. I mean, maybe Gumwall, Gum Fence, Gum. I don't know. It hasn't been much of a wall. Maybe we're waiting for it. But I mean, Philip Grubauer's <laughs> got to be Gumwall going forward, doesn't he? Like, I, didn't, I did not know this tonight. was a thing. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's we gotta we gotta put that out there. So right when you go, if you go to the Pike Place Fish Market. And you just take, there's like a little path that goes down pedestrian way, cobblestone street, and there's this huge wall and people just stick their gum on it. It's just, That's, it is. I, I'll so be, when I heard gum wall, that is what I thought. So yeah. it's good. To, it's <laughs> yeah, nice to know wall. that something lives up to expectations, but uh, I'm, you know, I might pass on, on going out of my way to see that. All right. I wanted to hit on you, myself and Sean Gentili teamed up to, uh, to do a rules court piece. This is basically, it's like a fun mailbag where you put out a call for, hey, you got an idea to change the game, change the rules, increase scoring, make it more fun. You throw your idea to us, no matter how wacky or zany it is. And then the three of us, we play the role of arbitrator. Like we were like, ah, you know what? Two in favor, one against, whatever. It passes or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And the one idea that I think we should discuss, because I think it was really cool and we all voted in favor of it, was the altering of the three-on-three overtime format to do something a little bit more fun. And maybe you could explain to our listeners what the idea is well, for, uh, for overtime. And it, it wasn't even the overtime. It was the shootout. Mm. Uh, we would basically, because we all, you know, overtime's pretty good, but what's the best part of the overtime, right? It's, it's when the two teams get going back and forth on right. the odd man rushes. Um, and I feel like a lot of fans were, I won't say all of us, but many of us are over the shootout. I, I've said I haven't watched a shootout in years. I, I I turn the TV off. I flip to a different game. I go watch hockey somewhere. I don't want to watch slow breakaways. Uh, you know, I'll find out who who wins the coin flip later. So one of our readers wrote in and said, "We scrap the shootout. We get rid of the the shootout. is is no longer an individual competition of breakaways. Now it's two on ones. So you get." You put the puck at center ice, you get two guys on the offensive team um, who have to start on that side. You have a defender in the uh, in the defensive zone who can start anywhere in that zone, and you have a goalie. And you go in, and it's two-on-ones. So it's the same concept, back and forth. You know, you, you could do, I guess, three, and then, you know, you go into, keep going if, uh, uh, if, if you're still tied after that. But instead of the breakaways, it's now we have two-on-ones, which means we have 
passing. We have breaking up passes. We have, you know, the decoys and all this other stuff comes into play rather than watching guys do the same five shootout moves over and over again. I love this idea. I, the defensemen now get involved. Defensive defensemen become important. Uh, the different skill sets um, that that are ignored in the shootout. Uh, and it would just be new and fresh and, you know, interesting. And I think it would be fascinating to watch and see kind of, you know, remember when the shootout came in, we were like, who's going to be good at shootouts? What goalies will be good? And it turned out, you know, there's a handful of guys that are good at shootouts. I don't even know which goalies have the best. You know, that didn't really become a thing. Wouldn't it be cool to find out, like, who's the defenseman that you go with right. on, you know, to break it up? Who do you use as your two guys? Do you go a setup guy and a sniper? Do you have two guys on the same line? Do you ever use, you know, does Kel McCarr get a chance? Do you do you ever put a forward back? Would you put Patrice Bergeron back there to try to break up a two-on-one? What kind of strategies would we have when you know, like, two-on-ones happen organically during the game, and there's always guys coming in to chase. When you have a little bit more time, you know, what what happens? Do we get... To you know, the the do the two forwards just come in on different sides the way they normally would on a two on one, or does it get played differently? Does the defender go more aggressively? Does he hang back? Do you let the goalie take one guy? I love the idea. I want to yes. see how it would play out. And I, like I said, I would absolutely be watching. I, I, I would be rooting <laughs> for overtime to end in a tie so that I could see the two on one competition. Plus, you do it the same. You know, you could do the same rules. You, you can't reuse guys until you until you run out. So now we get more guys in the mix, more players being used um, instead of just the same three or four guys you see every time. I, I love this idea so much that I'm, I'm already preemptively angry that I know the NHL would never consider it. Yeah. And you know, I, I the way I explained it, I was like, Hey, it's like the shootout and three on three uh, had a baby. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like that you take the best parts of each and you put them together. I, I couldn't find a thing that I didn't like about it, which which worries me. I'm like, this yeah. seems too good. But what I love, and and I know the thing that really came through with you and Gentilly, it's like, damn, these guys hate coaches. Like they just hate yep. NHL mm-hmm. coaches because they stuff, uh, they suck the life out of entertainment and fun. Yes. How how could a coach suck the life oh, out of a two on one how i don't think they can uh, they they'd find a way to you know to, <laughs> to, you know we said the same thing about three out three right now it's you know we see teams circling back and you know we some teams use two defensemen and all this stupid stuff but uh no i mean you you would have to it, it would just like there's so i have so many questions like would we what would happen when we, you saw a defenseman go back and then line a guy up and throw a body check like you'd have to allow that, right? I mean, you're allowed to defend. What happens when a guy just smokes the other guy and uh, comes across? Or I had this vision of, let's say, take a take a classic setup sniper pairing. Okay, let's say it's Backstrom and Ovechkin. What if you you let Backstrom take the puck, and what if he goes in fast into the zone and goes right at the defenseman and tries to see if you know forces the defenseman back, you know, gap control to try to you know keep him from going around him. And Ovechkin kind of sneaks up behind and then you do the drop pass back and Ovechkin's got the free one-timer from right between the circles sort of thing. There'd be so many different ways you could do it. I think it would just be fascinating. And, you know, you'd have to have some sort of rules. You wouldn't want guys to be going in and, you know, circling around and around and around over. And you'd have to figure out when the play actually ends. Is it with a save, a clear, whatever it is. But, oh, it would be so, it would be so much fun to just see, like, you know, who are the duos that are doing the best and, and all of this. Uh, there's just all these different scenarios. I want to see it. And I'm already 
Like I, I've already in my head had the conversation where you pitch it to the NHL and they go, eh, everything's fine. And <laughs> just decide not to change it. I like, I'm preemptively angry. Yeah. And the preemptively angry. That's how we, that's a general way to describe how we feel as NHL fan. Just yeah, preemptively angry. Yeah. Just preemptively angry and annoyed and, and yeah. just, just all of it. Yeah. All right. What happened? Well, like, we, wait, could, could you trip a guy? Like what happened? You, it, you get a penalty? Yeah. Then what, what would happen? happen? Then, I don't know. They probably get a, a penalty shot. I no. I'd let them go two on zero. then. Let's go two on zero. Let's yeah. really let's let's see if we can just really blow out a goalie's hammy on uh, on one of these where we go back and <laughs> yeah. forth nine times. That's uh, I don't know. We'd figure it out and it would be fun. So there you go. That's why it's not happening. Hey, we uh, we love these ideas and th- look, there was a lot that got left on the uh, sort of quote unquote cutting room floor. So we do want to encourage you, listeners. Hey, if you got some good ideas for, I think I could make the NHL better with a simple rule change or tweak. Like you know, send us send them our way. And yep. I'm sure we're going to do one of these rules court things again, maybe early in the off season or something. It's just a fun thing we try and do every few months. So fire away. And and I would like to have the conversation at some point of eliminating offside altogether. Mm-hmm. Like just like like just 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 go into it with an open mind. I because I know a lot of people are just no, it's a non-starter. Just I think we need to have the conversation at some point. I did. There's, there's, some merit. there's- no, it's a non-starter is sort of the default stance I've found for. I, and by the way, I really appreciate the feedback from hockey fans who reached out to tell me that the game is perfect and I should watch something else uh, yeah. if I don't like it. Yeah. Uh, I've looked at the TV ratings. Many people are taking your advice. So uh, you, ah. you'll be happy. You'll be happy to know that many people over the last decade or two have decided to watch something else. Um, I would like that number to drop. So uh, let's uh, let's get creative. You know, uh, one thing I also, I feel like when we do this podcast, and there's a big date on the horizon. I feel like it's our job to kind of be like, it's a public service announcement. I think even a few weeks ago, I was like, hey, heads up, we got daylight savings time coming. I feel like we need to send a warning shot to everybody. April Fool's Day is this yep. week, okay? Mm-hmm. And even though you and I, I think, I'd like to think that, you know, we like we like jokes and we like lighthearted stuff and fun. I don't think we like April Fool's Day, right? No. Like we don't. No, April Fool's Day is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> the the modern version of April Fool's Day is terrible. Where like you know companies just put out a, like oh we invented a holographic teleporter and then they're like no we didn't and it's well like ninety percent of April Fools is just people lying and then insisting they're not lying and then being like haha I got you with my lie and you're like yeah that's that's a good one like you got yeah, us yeah, yeah you good good one uh, yeah if you work at a company and you're like we're working on a company April Fool don't don't do it. Don't, don't do it because yeah, April, I, I'm, I'm, I'm up for a good prank as much as anyone, but uh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm a hard pass on April fools for me. Now, is there any prank in hockey history that you're like, ah, that was a great, that was a you know great what? You, prank. You sent me a list that, that yeah. you found on the, and, oh boy, there was some, <laughs> there was some not very good. Like it was just like people being jerks to each other. Like, yeah, it, we all. We told someone we were taking a picture and then we dumped ice water on them. Like, oh, that's that's hilarious. I put, you know, I, I destroyed somebody's shoes. I, I okay, that's that's a hilarious one. I I will say the two that I've liked, um, the the trend, and I, I haven't seen one in a little while, but for a while they were doing the thing. Like I think Kevin Bieksa was the first where they would dress a player up so his teammates didn't recognize him and then send him out to like talk to the teammates. Remember Kevin Bieksa was like a maintenance yeah. guy or something. <laughs> Those were pretty good. I will tell you the one April Fool's joke that I actually thought was really well done. Um, 
and it's it was here in Ottawa. You you might remember this. It was I gotta say twenty years ago. It was it was because it was when the Leafs Senators rivalry was was full blown. So this must have been two thousand two, the year they didn't face each other in the first round of the playoffs. So two thousand two, maybe it was two thousand three. Um, and the the I was driving into work and the the local radio station here, Team Twelve Hundred, your former home, uh, was talking about a story. Uh, that the CBC, due to budget cuts, <laughs> was not going to be able to cover all three Canadian series. The Leafs, the Canucks, and the Senators were all in the playoffs. And because of budget cuts, the CBC was not going to broadcast the Ottawa series. They were going to do Vancouver for the West, and they were going to do Toronto in the East because Toronto had so many more fans. And Senator fans were absolutely losing their minds. They were so angry. Um, and I was driving in, and like I was like, it, it didn't occur to me until I was walking into work <laughs> with like a little pep in my step because I couldn't wait to tell my senators fans, friends about this, that I realized what day it was. But it, that was the perfect prank because it fed into exactly what people already – it was believable enough. And you could right. absolutely – if you were a senators fan, that yeah, of course, the Leafs get all the attention. So now we're not even going to get to watch our team in the playoffs. Uh, the calls that they were taking were just absolutely hilarious from from furious Senator fans. Um, I don't remember. I don't think I was listening when they did the reveal that it was a joke, um, but it was that was an A plus prank. Um, but other than that, oh, there's not a there's not a lot of good ones. No, a lot of it is very contrived and forced. You know, the one hockey prank I always liked was, you know, trade deadline day. There's always a feeling like, you know, there's rumors about guys getting traded. And Brian Murray was great at, uh, you know, kind of lightening the mood and and, 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 and making jokes. And w- I was in Atlanta with the Senators, and, and I don't – I can't remember. It was maybe 2008. Um, Brian was the head coach. And there was rumors that Antoine Vermette was going to get traded. Vermette was kind of this kind of, is he a second liner? Is he a third line? He just didn't quite fit. There was rumors that he's going to need a new contract. They're going to move him. And it's trade deadline day, and we're in Atlanta, and it's right around, like, the time of the deadline. And they're on the ice. And Brian Murray calls everyone together, and he calls Vermette over. He says, Antoine, I'm very sorry to tell you this, but uh, you're sticking around. And Vermette was just, he said, you know, he couldn't believe, like, his heart was in his throat when, when Brian's yeah. like, hey, I got to tell you, I'm very sorry to tell you, you're not going anywhere. And it just, you know, it was just classic. Have you, I, I, yeah, they, they should absolutely do that on trade deadline. Like, how, how great would it be if, like, just in, 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 in Edmonton, you just call Leon Seidel over, have the GM come out, talk to him, have yeah. everybody tap their sticks on the ice, and just, like, the media would be going insane uh didn't that happen at the trade deadline a few years ago like somebody had to pee and they just left the ice and then yeah. came back but it had already been reported that like they were traded there was one well <laughs> I, I i remember this from one of those blooper videos that i grew up watching you're probably the same there was a baseball one where they called the guy in it was like some some younger player but the manager called and the gm was there and, and they told him they traded him to japan which is not a thing. You can't do that. But he didn't. Yes. They were explaining to you like you've been traded to the Yokomuri Giants or whatever. And he's yeah. just like crestfallen. And like he comes it, out and like that, like uh, everybody was in on it. They're yeah. all shaking his hand and, you know, they're packing up his locker. And he's like trying on the phone to his agent and all of this. And then they, you know, they all reveal that it was a joke. 
something like that i'm i'm in for it's uh you know that that to me is a lot better than just putting shaving cream in someone's pants pockets and calling it a day yeah or if you talk to uh, old nhl players who played like in the 70s and 80s they took commercial flights like all of them are like well we used to put a 20 dollar bill on a fishing line yes and drop it in the middle of the terminal and then watch people try to pick it up yeah like, that's what you did that was I that just, was a whole night back then man that yeah. was uh, that's what that's what it was and and I just thought of something. Do you remember? And it was this year, was it not? Where the Bruins tricked uh, Patrice Bergeron, told them that Brad Marchand was going to be captain. Do you remember this? No, like, oh, I hadn't heard was, that. Was there not? A, was there not a video of like you know Zdeno had left, right? And uh, yeah. Or, or was, what? What am I thinking of here now? Now I'm blanking. Do, but do you remember this? They, no, I don't. They, I don't remember. They but that would be. A- say that uh, we're very proud to announce that our new captain is Brad Marchand and Marchand comes up to take it and then they're all like, ah, I got you, Bur- Bur- Oh, that's a good no? one. Okay. I, I, yeah. No, I, 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 like I, I, I never that. saw it, but uh, um, that that one may have may have slipped by me. Oh, but, man. Now, uh, now I feel yeah. like I got to check that because now maybe did I just, is that like a fever dream or I, I could have sworn they did that. It was an idea. You might be pitching this. Yes. To the yeah, next, no, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I looked it up. Uh, they did. Yeah. Patrice Bergeron. And the practice, uh, Captain Prank. It happened. They they named him. Yep. They jokingly uh, named. <laughs> it's pretty good. They named Marshan Captain, and in front of everybody, and it's it's that's, great. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. All right. Uh, why don't we open up the mailbag here to wrap up the show? And we got a quick this week in hockey history too. A reminder, as mm-hmm. always, you can email us to the Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com, the Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com, or leave us a voicemail. We love that, 845-445-8459. This is an interesting one because I think a lot of people would tell you the Calgary Flames are Stanley Cup favorite. And certainly in that in that upper echelon, if you're going to pick put five teams in the mix to be Stanley Cup favorite, Calgary would, would be in that list. But they don't have a captain right now. And Jesse wants to know, look, the Flames look like legit cup contenders. They don't have a captain. If they do win the Stanley Cup, they don't have a captain. Who would accept the trophy from the commissioner? And has this ever happened before? That's from Jesse. So uh, I, the answer is whoever they want. Um, they're, I, I'm not even sure if it is a rule anywhere that the captain has to accept it. He, he's just the leader of the team. That's who Bettman calls over. I would assume they would just let Gary Bettman know uh, who they want it. Uh, or perhaps they would just go as a group. Anything like that. It's, it's not a hard and fast rule so much as it's a tradition. Um, I'm not sure if we've ever had a Stanley Cup winner that had nobody wearing the captaincy, but we have had one where there was a rotating captaincy. And the the good news for Calgary is it was the Calgary Flames uh, in 1989. Right. That uh, that team, it was Lanny McDonald, Jim Poplinski, uh, and Tim Hunter sort of rotated uh, uh, throughout as as who the captain was. Um, and, you know, the... the it was fine. It's not uh, not an issue. You just decide who gets to wear the C on any given night, or or nobody does. I would assume it'd be one of the assistants, but uh, you will still get your cup, uh, and uh, it'll it'll just be whoever the team decides they want to send over. And l- l- let's read one more email uh, that came in. This is from Preston, who describes himself as Preston the Confused Sharks fan. Guys, okay. I, know, I know there's always a lot of talk from fans on bad teams that want to have their pending UFA players traded away at the deadline as a rental only to sign them again after free agency. I want to know, why don't NHL teams ever consider uh, that when you trade a player under contract to a contender, have a provision written in that says that the player is traded back 
to that original team in the offseason. I think this could be very creative, and although it would never work out in the NHL, I love to imagine crazy scenarios that it might cook up. That's from Preston, the Sharks fan. Yeah, uh, the answer to this is uh, that the NHL wouldn't allow it, is, is basically it. You, you always see, uh, or, or at least you, you sometimes see trades go in with future considerations attached to them, and then the future considerations are almost never revealed. Um, but they do have to be revealed to the league. You have to give the league the full scoop. That's, you know, these, these trade calls that we've all learned so much about, thanks to Evgeny Dodonov and, and <laughs> all of that. That's part of what goes into it is, you know, anything like that, that you wanted to formally put into a deal, uh, you, you would, um, you would have to disclose to the league there and then they wouldn't allow that because they don't want, you know, they don't want these sorts of, you know, there's, there's rentals in the sense that we know it today, but they don't want guys just you know, being loaned out to, to teams. Now, the, the follow-up question is, well, why not just make it, a, make it a handshake deal? Why not just say, you know, kind of a wink and a nudge that you'll flip this guy back to me? Um, and I, I, the closest I can think of is it, it did happen with Keith Kachuk back in the day. I yep. think it was St. Louis and Atlanta where he went, went to one for a playoff run and then got traded back in the offseason for pre or his rights as a free agent got traded back for a lot of the same package that he was traded for the first time. But that was a situation where he, he didn't want to resign. And so they were sending him back to, so that he could sign with his old team. Not quite the same thing. Could you have a handshake agreement? Yes, but there would be two problems with that. The first would be if the league found out they could potentially take action against you. The maybe more important would be that it was not, uh, it would not be something that was binding at all because you haven't disclosed it to the league therefore it's not part of the deal so if you go and trade you know i trade my first liner to this team and it's like wink nudge you're going to send him back to me and then in the off season i pick up the phone and go okay i want my guy back and they go no we changed our minds or it's a different gm you know someone's been fired i've i've got no recourse i can't go to the league and say we had a we had a wink nudge deal uh they're gonna say too bad it wasn't in writing it's not a deal and and now i'm uh, i'm really up the creek yeah. And again, it just it's just it's just basically it's tampering it, to to put it mildly, right? Like where you're basically Yeah, the the league Gary Bettman and the league have wide powers to address pretty much anything. Anything you look at with a CBA or, you know, transaction rules where you say, "Well, you know, is there a loophole?" There might be. Gary Bettman can close any loophole that he wants uh by basically just it's 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 not the you know it's the old best interest of baseball clause that yeah. uh, uh, that Major League Baseball has. It's a similar sort of thing, um, and you know we know how Gary Bettman is. If he feels like someone's trying to get one over on him, he's not going to react kindly to it. All right, let's wrap it up real quick with a little this week in hockey history, where we take a stroll back, talk about some colorful, weird, fun, historic moments in hockey. Got a couple uh, for you this week. Let's go back to March twenty eighth of nineteen seventy five. The Washington Capitals roll into uh, Oakland, beat the California Golden Seals 5-3. Why is that significant, you ask? It ended a 37-game losing streak for them on the road. They uh, finished 1-39 on the road that year. I want to know, Sean, are the 1974-75 Washington Capitals the worst team of the post-expansion era? I would argue that yes, they are. Uh, I would, uh, I would say that they were, that, that team was terrible. I mean, there, there are other contenders, the early senators, the early sharks, um, you could, uh, you could certainly point to, but, uh, oh my goodness, that capitals team was terrible. Certainly of, of teams that stuck around, 
Um, a lot of the other teams you would think about were, you know, the, the Golden Seals or the Kansas City Scouts or teams that, that ceased to exist um, relatively quickly. Um, th- those early capitals and in really for the first five years or so were just an absolutely terrible team. And of course, that this was the, the famous team. This is their first year. So they have not won a road game in franchise history. And they, they get to almost the end of the season. They win this one. This is the, um, the, the famous game where they then uh, skate around the ice with a, or not skate around the ice, but go around the dressing room with a garbage can yeah. that they call, they call the Stanley can and they pass it around like it's the Stanley Cup from teammate to teammate. And that's, um, that's, that's when you know you're a real bad team is when you've got, uh, Stanley can. uh when you got guys, when you're passing a garbage can around to, uh, symbolize, uh, symbolize things, that's, that's when it's real bad. Okay. The other date I want to hit on is a few years later, March 29th, 1981, Wayne Gretzky sets an all-time record. He gets point number 153 on this date, uh, March 29th, 1981. That breaks Phil Esposito's previous single season record of 152. And I'm wondering, Sean, if you ask the average hockey fan, hey, when Wayne Gretzky broke the single-season point record, whose record did he break? How many fans do you think would know that the answer is Phil Esposito? You know, I'm I'm not sure. Like, we we have sort of lost the, uh, like, I, I, Phil Esposito, I don't feel like gets enough respect for the what he did offensively in that era. Because I, I, you know, I, I we've, we talked a little bit uh, I, I think a few weeks ago about, you know, the top five, the top 10 players ever. And Phil Esposito is a guy you don't often hear in that. You know, people talk, it's it's the big four. And then, you know, is it Crosby? Is it Ovechkin? Is it a defenseman? Is it a goalie? Phil Esposito didn't just hold these records. He, he destroyed these records in the early 70s. And, you know, yeah, it was partly because it was Phil Esposito and Bobby Orr. Uh, you had the, the two best offensive players in the league. It was partly because of the expansion era. So, uh, you know, a lot of players in the league that that wouldn't have been good enough just a few years ago, and it led to this offensive explosion, and and all of that factored in. But you know, Phil Esposito didn't just set the record. You know, Phil Esposito, there had never been a 100 point player in the NHL. Right. The record was 97 going into the late 60s, and then Phil Esposito has a 126 point season, so he breaks the record by 29 points. Uh, and then two years later breaks that record by 26 points, gets it up to 152. So in the span of three years, we go from 97 points as the NHL record to Phil Esposito having 152. It's it's the equivalent of somebody coming along and not just beating Gretzky's 200 points record, but having 300 in a year. Right. I mean, that's it just absolutely destroys it. Same thing with goals, right? Goals for the longest time to even get to 50 was the the gold standard. Then Bobby Hull comes along. He has a 54, then a 58-goal season. Phil Esposito comes along, scores 76. So again, take whatever goal-scoring record, even if you want to do it by era, take the, the highest goal total of the last however many years, and then imagine somebody beating that by 18 in one year. It's just insane to think how, uh, how dominant Phil Esposito was. And of course, Bobby Orr's doing the same thing on the blue line. Um, and I think, Maybe because it was only, you know, for the most part, a decade before Wayne Gretzky comes along and then just wipes out those records and and, and adds to them even more. Obviously, we were, we all are going to remember Gretzky, especially because those are the records that still stand. But 
the stuff that Phil Esposito did as far as rewriting the record book was every bit as amazing at the time um, and uh, every bit as unprecedented. Yeah. Okay. Listen, we'll leave it there. This hour absolutely uh, flew by. Listen, thanks everybody for listening to this latest edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. Uh, we'll get you again next Thursday. And uh, if you got any questions for us, again, email us. The Athletic Hockey Show at gmail.com. Or like I said, we'd love to hear your voice. Drop us a voicemail. 845-445-8459. If you're not a subscriber with us, you can join us at theathletic.com slash hockey show. Get an annual subscription for $1 a month for six months. And also, we got a cool thing called the Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Get all of our bonus content. Sean and I do some fun trivia stuff there. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, cool audio from our entire library. We'll start with a 30-day free trial, and then it's just $0.99 cents a month after that.